This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Chapter 2. Section 14. The Goal of Systematics. A society under the influence of Neoplatonism will seek to be spiritual, or in revolt, to be materialistic. Both goals are illusory, because spirit and matter can never be isolated, and the whole man is involved in his every activity. In Marxism, we have the revolt from idealism, for example, the reign of Platonic ideas, to materialistic determination. Of course, the extent to which Marx abandoned Neoplatonism is questionable. He is clearly an intellectual heir of Plato. In spite of this, Karl Marx did succeed because he broke clearly with one aspect of the older tradition, the reign of criticism. Again, it is true that a new kind of criticism, Marxist in form, replaced the older humanistic standard of criticism. But, all the same, Marx was openly hostile to the entire philosophic tradition of humanism when he declared, in his 11th, of the thesis on Feuerbach, Quote, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. End quote. According to Marx, idealism rests on the primacy and determining power of mind or ideas, whereas in reality, he insisted the prior and determinative factor in history is not mind, but matter. Ultimacy for the idealist is in ideas. For the materialist, it is in matter. As a result... Marx interpreted history in terms of the process of production. Civil society in its various stages and institutions is the outcome of material forces. This is also true of all theoretical products and of all forms of consciousness, religion, philosophy, ethics, and so on. To hold otherwise, Marx insisted, is idealistic humbug. For Marx, quote, Not criticism but revolution is the driving force of history, also of religion, of philosophy, and all other types of theory, end quote. For the open or implicit idealist, ideas are ultimate, and therefore, whether the idealist is an empiricist or a rationalist, criticism is basic. Critical analysis is the necessary application of the principle of ultimacy, man's autonomous mind, to the problems of man, time, and history. With the decline of Christian faith, philosophy became powerful in history, beginning with the scholastics renewed by Descartes and culminating in Hegel, for whom the rational is the real. The philosophies could with reason speak of the omnipotence of criticism because the basic faith of the day ascribed it to critical analysis. Marx dethroned the primacy of ideas and the older form of humanism. Philosophy accordingly lost its preeminence to sociology and to political-economic theories. There were philosophies and ideas, to be sure, but ones which asserted the priority and ultimacy of the material. The joy of Marx and Engels over the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species is understandable. Darwin accepted meant the acceptance of a mindless universe, and hence the inevitability of materialistic determination. Mechanism was rejected by Marx. His is a dialectical materialism. He is still in the tradition of Greek dialectics. The idea now was transformed into an opposing force in history, formidable, but predetermined for destruction because the material must triumph. Both practice without theory 
and theory without practice were rejected. Ideas were not abandoned for mechanism. They were retained, but grounded in matter. Biblical faith, on the other hand, denies the ultimacy of both mind and matter and declares both to be aspects of God's creation. There is thus no determination by either mind or by matter. The omnipotence of criticism is denied, as is the determination of all things by material forces. God being sovereign, omnipotent, and ultimate, all things are determined by Him from all eternity. The Christian's approach to the world is not in terms of criticism nor revolution, but in terms of God's regenerating power. Like the idealist, the Christian is interested in interpretation, but not the interpretation of critical analysis. God's interpretation of all things is set forth in principle by His inscripturated Word. It becomes the duty of the covenant man to see all things in terms of that Word. But like the Marxist, he cannot regard interpretation as a goal in itself. His purpose must be to change all things through Christ. Thus, Christian faith, if it rests in sterile and isolated intellectualism, is false to its premises. The same is true of ecclesiastical activism in the social realm. In both cases, there is a denial of the fact that biblical faith gives us a world and life view. Basic to Scripture is the fact that it is the word of the sovereign and creator of all things, so that neither idealism nor materialism can do other than deny him. The expression of Christianity is neither in ideas nor in action, in neither criticism nor revolution, but in faith and obedience. Nehemiah is a good summation of the biblical faith. When his enemies saw his efforts, they at first derided them as a joke. Later, they treated them as a threat. Nehemiah had two choices. He could have entered into dialogue with his enemies, to persuade them of the innocence of his efforts and to gain their goodwill. He could have dropped all efforts at reconstruction in favor of a rigorous policy of defense and offense, of dealing with the enemy directly and immediately. He did neither. Nehemiah and his men labored with their weapons girded on their sides. They rejected both criticism and dialogue on the one hand, and revolutionary action on the other, in favor of godly reconstruction, and God blessed them. Nehemiah 4. Systematic theology cannot be simply an exercise in thinking, and a systemization of biblical thought. It must be thinking for action in terms of knowing, obeying, and honoring God by fulfilling His mandate to us. It cannot be in abstraction from battle. It is related to what happens in church, state, school, family, the arts and sciences, the vocations, and all things else. Systematic theology is thus far more than a course in the seminary curriculum, the purpose of which is to organize the student's ideas about theology. Systematics presupposes an ordered knowledge because God is absolute order, and God requires that man, created in His image, bring all things within His province, including man himself, into line with God's order and purpose. The Bible is a manual for dominion under God. It declares God's word and requirements, and it summons man to obey. The Bible gives us God's marching orders for creation. Systematic theology cannot content itself with organizing information. The Incarnation is at the heart of our faith. The Incarnation of God the Son is a unique event, but its implications are universal. What God requires of man and the earth must be embodied in all our lives and activities, in all that we are and do, or else we deny the Word, and the God who gave the Word. We began by stating that systematics says that God is God. To say that God is the Lord means that we are to be totally under the absolute government of His Word, because we are totally His creation, and our redemption is totally His work. 
and a manifestation of His sovereign grace. No theology and no preaching can faithfully set forth the God of Scripture without making fully clear His absolute ownership of us, so that we, our lives, callings, families, substance, and time must be totally commanded by Him. This is, of course, the task of all theology and of all preaching. What systematics does is to set forth in particular clarity the unity, particularity, and order in the Word of God in order better to arm the man of God. Systematics works to strengthen epistemological self-consciousness by striking out against the inconsistencies of smorgasbord religion. It works to uproot alien presuppositions and to clarify the biblical mandate. Systematics, however, stresses not man but God, so that man's sin, his calling, and his future are seen not in terms of man's hopes and needs, but in terms of God's purpose and order. Because man is a sinner, he is man-centered. He seeks to make the universe revolve around him and his needs. Man-made religions reflect this orientation. Their goal is the fulfillment of man, and God is a resource in that purpose. Systematic theology, however, must work to restore perspective to religion, to give it its necessary God-centered focus, in brief, to let God be God. Because theology has so often become abstract or materialistic, it overlooks the plain words of Scripture. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. This is an unpretentious goal, but it is a scriptural one. St. Paul makes clear the same setting aside of the world's ways and wisdom, declaring, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21 and 27-29 Section 15 Systematics and Lordship The goal of systematics is to declare that God is the Lord. He is king over all creation. The Lord is king forever and ever, Psalm 10.16. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever, Psalm 29.10. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob whom he loved, Psalm 47.2-4. A faithful systematics declares, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Psalm 145, 3 and 13. With this in mind, let us glance briefly at the life of a churchman and politician, a man very clearly superior to most churchmen and politicians. He is a tither and a loyal, hard-working church member. He is also a mason, and his memoirs of life on Capitol Hill indicate no mandate to apply biblical requirements to law, politics, and much else in every man's working life. He can relate President L.B. Johnson's stories about flagrantly illegal voting, 
with the same relish as Johnston, and with no sense of the obscene travesties of the life of the Republic. Moreover, he can cite the words of Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, a blend of deism and modern humanism, and Churchill's faith in man, with no apparent sense of their radical contradiction to biblical faith. In all of this, however, he is like millions of other churchmen who feel that a very simple faith is satisfying to God. Of course, the clergy are even worse. Christian scholars and clergymen, who should know better, have often objected to me. What's wrong with humanism? Many pride themselves on anti-systematic and smorgasbord approaches to religion. None of this is possible where God is indeed God, where His Lordship is confessed and applied to the totality of our lives. The goal of any religion, faith, or philosophy is a universal one. If it be true, it must be true for all times and places. Even hedonistic, relativistic humanism calls for the same universalism. Williams, who affirms, quote, the truth of hedonistic individual relativism, end quote, holds, quote, if maximum individual long-range satisfaction makes duty for decent people, it does so for rascals also. It does so for all conscious organisms. The principle is universal, end quote. The humanists, who have the sorriest grounds for asserting a universal faith, are all the same succeeding because of their consistency of faith, their insistence on their universality of principle. Churchmen are meanwhile faltering and failing because of their lack of any universal application. By their affirmation of the triune God, the churchmen should, more than anyone else, insist on the catholicity and universality of Christian faith and biblical law. Very early, however, it was precisely this factor which was abandoned. Pierre Boyle, 1647-1706, first a Protestant and then a Catholic, but in essence a Cartesian, actually held that there is no necessary connection between religion and morality, a belief that brought him in his day much hostility. Now, more are ready to believe that atheists are not moved to a new ethical premise by their unbelief. Churchmen too often reject the idea of necessary connections between ideas and action, faith and life, and principles and things. To reject or underrate such a necessary connection is to deny God, implicitly or explicitly, and to affirm a universe of chance connections. In a Darwinian world, of course, it follows that connections are either products of chance or are man-made. If man-made, then systematics is anthropology. No divine decree is then permitted, because God then becomes the inescapable Lord and God, not man. The whole point of David's Psalms, as of all scripture, is that God as creator, preserver, and redeemer is the necessary connection between all things. David can therefore declare, the eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Psalm 145.15 Our Lord declares that God the Lord is the governing and necessary connection in the life and death of a sparrow, and in man's life as well, to the very number of hairs on his head. Matthew 10.29-31 Balmer, in discussing the rise of political absolutionism in the modern age, rightly sees absolutionism as, quote, closely identified with the idea of sovereignty. End quote. When sovereignty was transferred from God to the political order, absolute power began to accrue also to the state. We can add further that universality or Catholicity was also necessarily transferred to the state as an aspect of sovereignty. Not surprisingly, this has led to demands for a one-world state. The feebler concept of the medieval church, Catholic and mildly absolutist, has given way to modern totalitarianism. Marxism, fascism, and the democracies each dream of a world state, 
Catholic or universal, sovereign, and absolute. This is the ancient dream of Babylon the Great, of Babel. It will not be answered or dissolved by piecemeal and non-principled opposition. Against the systematics of the humanistic world order, we must declare the systematics of a theology faithful to the triune God and His infallible, inerrant word. The systematics of humanism is in self-contradiction. It is false, destructive of itself and man, and vapid. But if churchmen have no systematics, they cannot counter the reigning evil. They have disarmed themselves. When Paul wrote, Necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me, if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. He meant indeed that his calling from God was an urgent and mandatory one, but he meant far more. Necessity, ananke, that which must or needs be, means the total necessity of God's word and his government. It is inclusive of, for, of all reason, determination, and meaning. The totality of God's decree, providence, and calling placed a necessity upon Paul. The necessity is theistic, cosmic, and personal. Today, the determination in necessary is essentially and often exclusively personal. A thing is necessary because we deem it so. Systematic theology must affirm that the Lord God is the necessary cause, connection, will, power, and action in all things. Anything short of that is not theology, but anthropology. Anything short of that must abandon the psalmist to sing praises to man. The power and necessity are then ascribed to man. But David declares, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises unto our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing ye praises with understanding. Psalm 47, 6 and 7. This is the task of systematic theology, to sing praises to God the Lord with understanding. Section 16. The Search for a Master Principle One of the persistent problems which haunts human thought, and philosophy and theology in particular, is the search for a master principle, a universal and sometimes a particular, in terms of which all things can be understood. The history of human thought gives us a succession of master principles and ideas, and a remarkable variety of them. These include yang and yin, karma, kamis, ideas or forms, mathematics, evolution, the existential self, and much, much more. The quest for a master principle is in essence anti-biblical and is destructive of Christianity. Its influence through the centuries has been to misdirect Christian thought and to lead it into alien and destructive channels. Not until we rid ourselves of this futile quest can we begin to think biblically. Unfortunately, all of education, virtually, is committed precisely to this quest, and it is the essence of humanistic education to seek a master principle. That master principle was once viewed as more or less transcendent, and was sometimes even named God. Now it is seen as imminent and even more as entirely the product of man. In any case, it is anti-biblical and is destructive. No master principle or idea exists in, behind, or beyond the universe. There is, rather, the master person, the triune God. Between an abstract master principle or idea and the totally personal God, an unbridgeable gap exists. An idea is an abstraction. The triune God is totally personal, real, and concrete. But this is not all. Because the being of God is not complex, but simple and unified, all aspects of God are equally God. There is no aspect of God which represents the principle of deity, whereas other aspects are peripheral and secondary. 
God is totally God in all His being. Thus, to view one aspect of God as representing the essence of His nature and or deity is to isolate that one aspect as God over God. We cannot view God's sovereignty, His oneness, His triunity, His omnipotence, omniscience, eternity, grace, holiness, righteousness, His power to create, or anything else, as alone the essence of His being. God is God in all His being, and to exalt one aspect over others is to make that abstracted and abstract idea a God over God. The same is true when we approach the Bible. If we try to probe and reach a word behind the word, for example, a master principle which is beyond the word, we see the word as an interesting surface or clothing which veils the idea or the master principle. We then seek an abstract word and deny the actual word. In Gnosticism, this very strong belief in master principles and ideas led to the treatment of the Bible as a code book pointing beyond itself to a realm of ideas. This bald Gnosticism is a very minor aspect of our times, but more sophisticated in form. The same impetus governs education. The higher the education, the more impersonal and abstract the learning. Critical analysis seeks to penetrate beyond the real and the personal, to the abstract and the impersonal, as somehow the truth about things. In its crudest form, this error has been commonplace to the sciences, but as a product of philosophy and theology. The world has been reduced to mathematics, to a machine, to matter, to atoms, to evolution, and the like. In my student days, when dead and pickled frogs were brought in for dissection, the professor stated that, in the course of our dissection and reading on the anatomy of the frog, we were to master everything significant to be known about the frog. One girl, P.D., in humor rather than in earnest, quipped, But this frog is dead! The professor, not at all amused, replied with an expression common to the 1920s and 1930s. Life is an epiphenomenon. Life and consciousness were seen as irrelevant by byproducts. The abstraction from life was reality. Thus, for the modern university and seminary, the wisest are those who can think most abstractly. The more they reduce reality to ideas, the greater their learning and status, and the deadlier the consequences for the church and for society. The quest for an impersonal abstraction is a quest for nothingness, and those who seek it become themselves nothing, and an encumbrance on society. Abstraction, Latin, ab, from traher, to draw, means the separation of a quality, idea, aspect, or principle from a total object. It rests on the premise that the best means of understanding the total object is by means of an abstraction of its quality or principle. Analysis comes from Aristotle and his analytics. Analysis considers all aspects on a par in order to isolate the key aspects for purposes of knowledge, for example, for abstraction. The goal of analysis is to isolate, to dissect. Man, the thinker of abstract principles, having analyzed, isolated, and abstracted, then, after Kant, plays God by means of synthetic judgments which view the world as will and idea. Truth becomes what man abstracts by analysis and puts together by his logic. Such a truth is not only abstract, it is finally a mental construct and no more. An education which begins with the faith that the living God is a person, not an abstraction, and that all creation is a personal fact brought forth by the totally personal God, will seek to further the practical implications of that truth. It will work to further knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion. It is not an accident that only out of Christian cultures have science, technology, and agriculture developed to a considerable degree.
The concreteness of our faith requires it. The hostility to abstractness appeared clearly in the preliminary principles of the form of government of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, 1788, Chapter 1, Article 4. That truth is in order to goodness, and the great touchstone of truth, its tendency to promote holiness, according to our Savior's rule, by their fruits ye shall know them, and that no opinion can be either more pernicious or more absurd than that which brings truth and falsehood upon a level, and represents it as of no consequence what a man's opinions are. On the contrary, they are persuaded that there is an, an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth and duty. Otherwise, it would be of no consequence either to discover or to embrace it. The humanist, however, believes in pure education. For example, even when vocational, it is abstract and seeks to reach abstract principles. In its greatest purity, it is learning for learning's sake, but not because truth is the object of learning, but because man can best realize his potentialities by developing his grasp of abstractions. The result is that the more learned the man, the more commonly he is incompetent in the world of concrete things and peoples. He can handle abstraction, but not reality, unless somehow he can reduce it to abstractions. Thus, in a small city, with only a single Negro family, moderately successful, popular, accepted, and at ease, a civil rights administrator for an area, a college graduate, sought to analyze the local situation in terms of sociological abstractions. The fact was that the family was godly, hard-working, and personally a pleasure to know. But this fact did not constitute a valid abstraction for understanding race relations in that community. This simple incident pinpoints the problem. The humanist seeks an abstraction from the facts to understand the facts. The Christian seeks the creator of all facts as the means of understanding the facts. The humanistic biblical commentator tries to analyze the situation of a Bible passage historically, then to abstract from that an idea which will account for the facts. The Christian sees God as the source of the word, the situation, and the history, and sees that totally personal God at work in all things. Men seek to project a master principle or idea into the heavens as the truth about things. However sophisticated the apparatus and intellectual ingenuity of such thinking, it remains idolatry. The search for a master principle or idea in an attempt, in reality, to deny the living God and to create an idol. It is comparable to Aaron's idolatry. Aaron created a golden calf, but, when confronted by Moses, tried to say that the idol came out of the gold and fire as a product thereof. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Exodus 32:34. Master principles and ideas from the Greeks to the present are like Aaron's golden calf. They are fashioned by men, but supposedly appear miraculously as self-generated facts. But they are man-made idols and abstractions. Systematic theology cannot be systematic abstractionism and idolatry. The personal and living God requires a faith which bears fruit, good fruit, and moves from faith to live in terms of establishing knowledge, righteousness or justice, holiness, and dominion in every area of life and thought. Godly education must be the same. It arms the people of God for battle, victory, and dominion. Anti-biblical education abstracts ideas from reality and scholars from the world of wholeness and action. Christian education and systematic theology immerse the godly into that world and requires an accounting of God's people. When God called His covenant people Israel and gave them the promised land, that land was not a safe harbor, 
but the main highway of the ancient world. Israel could be faithful or apostate, but it could not be abstract. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1-7 and 29, and the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, do the same with the new Israel of God. Section 17. Abstractionism. We began by calling attention to the alien principle of abstraction as truth, because Greek philosophy saw ultimate truth as an abstraction, as an idea, not a person. Truth and knowledge required for them the process of abstraction. Truth is a distillation from the material context of reality. To know the truth about things meant not getting behind or beyond things, but getting to the heart of things, to what lies beneath the surface, person or thing. According to Plato in his Republic, Socrates held, quote, Unless a person can strictly define by a process of thought the essential form of good, abstracted from everything else, and unless he can fight his way, as it were, through all objections, studying to disprove them not by the rules of opinion, but by those of real existence, and unless in all these conflicts he travels to his conclusion without making one false step in his train of thought, unless he does all this, shall you not assert that he knows neither the essence of good nor any other good thing, and that any phantom of it, which he may chance to apprehend, is the fruit of opinion and not of science, and that he dreams and sleeps away his present life, and never wakes on his side of that future world, in which he is doomed to sleep forever. End quote. To grasp the influence of this pagan principle, let us see its application in everyday life by countless churchmen. We are told often that we cannot judge or know someone unless we know that person's heart, and only God knows the heart. I have heard this said of a variety of offenders, homosexuals, in one case a rapist, talebearers and slanderers, and so on. The Bible gives us some very concrete ways of knowing people. By their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 7.20 What do these people do? They insist on abstracting the heart or essence of a man from the totality of his life and actions. The end result, in any Christian sense, is that all men are in the practical sense unknowable, because their heart or essence is something radically different, perhaps from the actual and concrete fact of their lives. The abstractionist has an abstract doctrine of man. The historical man is not the heart man or essential man, supposedly. The Bible requires us to regard the historical man as the real man. We cannot abstract an idea from the man and call the idea true or essential man. A man defines himself in his historical existence and in terms of God's word. God who created man provides the standard for the judgment of man, and it is the historical man, the whole man, who is judged, not an abstraction. The Greek mind in theology goes to the Bible to abstract an idea about God. The tools this Greek mind uses can be outwardly biblical. Ideas such as sovereignty and the covenant can be abstracted from their biblical context, as can the doctrine of man to create an alien principle. Thus James Dan continually requires theologians to do justice to his abstract doctrine of man. In Thomism, it is an abstract doctrine of God. But God has already given us his word. That word is emphatically concrete. We cannot reject the concreteness of Scripture as anthropomorphic language. Rather, God's concreteness of language sets forth the totally personal nature of God and His creation. Attempts to diffuse and denature that radically personal character of revelation are deformations thereof. Gardner Williams, in his Humanistic Ethics, cited Plato's words on abstraction with approval as an important truth. He thus summoned thinkers to define the good. 
for Williams, quote, the supreme being is the ultimate reality or substance of the universe, end quote. It is structured energy, and, quote, the collective whole of all independent being, upon which everything else in the universe depends for existence, end quote. This supreme being is thus impersonal, and is for Williams both the collective whole and an abstraction of that whole, in that it is impersonal energy. The necessity of abstractionism for Williams is thus inescapable. To understand reality means to pursue a necessary process of abstraction. For the Christian thinker, however, such a process takes him away from God and is a denial of Him. When John declares that Jesus Christ is a declaration of the Father, and that grace and truth came in the person of Jesus Christ, John 1, 17 and 18, he makes clear the vast gap between Greek philosophy and the Bible. For truth to come in the person of Jesus Christ, and to be fully expressed in His person, John fourteen sixteen, goes totally against Greek philosophy. The Logos, word, meaning, or structure of the universe, says John, is not an abstraction. It is the person of God the Son. Systematic theology thus cannot be abstract. It must be biblical. And the Bible is personal, concrete, and historical. But to do justice to history, and to avoid turning history into a meaningless shadow against the void, it must be seen as the creation of the personal and triune God. Time is real because eternity is real. Neither time nor eternity is shadows and abstractions. Thus, when Ezekiel 35.2 declares that God commanded him to prophesy against Mount Seir and its people, it is a word from God to concrete people in history who are to be judged by the eternal and ever-living God for their sins. God's concern about man's sins in any and every age is an historical concern rooted in his eternal decree and his purposes therein. Abstractionism soon loses its hold on both time and eternity, because it seeks a truth behind and under both of them. But we cannot go behind or beyond God. We must go to Him in His Word. The concreteness of that Word is offensive to fallen man, because it is too clearly the personal Word of the personal God. But there is no other Word. Section 18. Seminary Systematics the presupposition of critical analysis is the autonomy of human thought. By means of rational and scientific analysis, free of presuppositions, man can supposedly arrive at the truth. Critical analysis, thus, first, assumes an objective and autonomous stance on the part of man, an assumption which is pure myth, not reality. Second, critical analysis denies the fact of the fall as basic to the life and mind of man. Man's status as a fallen and sinful creature, a covenant-breaker, radically alters all his thinking and conditions, his presuppositions. To suppose that such a man can give us an impartial and unbiased conclusion is to deny the fall and assume that man is a god. Third, critical analysis denies the religious foundations of human thought and sees man as essentially rational rather than essentially religious. For a Christian to pursue critical analysis is to assume an anti-Christian intellectual stance, which will progressively undermine his theological profession. Church seminaries and colleges, eager to gain academic respectability, and the lust for academic respectability is the major cause of intellectual whoredom, regularly lose their professed faith because their methodology requires another religion, humanism. Having begun with critical analysis, they regularly wind up in bed with the humanists. Christian analysis, on the other hand, denies, first, that man can have an objective and an autonomous stance. 
Man is either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker, and, in either case, a creature and hence never autonomous or objective. Second, the fall of man has clouded and twisted the mind of man. Not even the redeemed man, since he is far from perfectly sanctified in this life, is able to give an untainted analysis. Only as man seeks to think God's thoughts after him in faithfulness to God's word, can man begin to know and understand the truth as God created it and declares it. Such valid knowledge as the ungodly gain will be wrenched out of context and given an alien meaning. Third, Christian analysis will always affirm that religious presuppositions govern the life and mind of man, so that man's faith will always condition his life and thought. But what does the seminary do, for example, the evangelical or the reformed seminary? Almost invariably, for example, as it approaches the Graf-Wellhausen theory, it will do so from the perspective of critical analysis. The earnest and scholarly critique which follows will aptly pinpoint the contradictions and errors of the documentary hypothesis concerning the Pentateuch. But at the same time, while gaining various local battles, it loses the war. It presupposes as valid a viciously false approach. It treats unbelief as an honest intellectual problem, whereas it is in reality a moral and a religious problem. If the Bible is true, then, whether a man is a male prostitute or a cynical critic of the Old Testament text, he is a moral and a religious problem, not an intellectual question. Intellectual problems are internal questions within a system. A covenant breaker has one kind of intellectual problem, and a covenant keeper another. The intellectual problems are then questions of development, understanding, and growth within a faith and a framework. But man's presence within that framework is a religious and a moral decision. To adopt the methodology of unbelief is to accept the presuppositions of unbelief and to surrender the faith that the intellectual problems of man, as a creature, have their roots in a religious and moral decision. The seminary and college with a false moral basis will soon go astray. The battle line is shifted from the moral to the intellectual realm to accommodate the enemy. A false systematics then undergirds the curriculum. The seminary, thus, will endlessly analyze the theories of the adherence of the Graf Wellhausen myth. Instead of teaching the Bible, it will be dealing with problems in terms of critical analysis. It will grant moral validity to the enemy's objections and objectives. The student majoring in either Old or New Testament will know much about what the enemy has to say, but he can leave seminary and be unable, in an ordination examination, to name four minor prophets, spell Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Habakkuk, name the Ten Commandments, or do other like elementary things. These are actual illustrations from examinations. It stands to reason that he cannot summarize the main points of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Haggai, or Jeremiah. He can, however, discuss ably the Graf-Wellhausen theory, so that, as a pastor, he has a good bag of stones to feed Christ's flock. If the student is a theology major, it is unlikely that he will leave the seminary with a full reading of any great theologian. He may be reformed, but it is unlikely that he will have read Calvin's Institutes. A course in Calvin, the Church Fathers, Luther, Van Til, or any other like thinker is very unlikely, but he will get courses on the current theological idiot of the Covenant Breakers Church. After all, must he not have a box full of serpents for Christ's flock? Am I saying that it is wrong to study Barth, Moltmann, and the like? Not at all. For the specialist, provided he has had a firm grounding in sound theology, and in good theologians, first of all. Does he know, for example, Calvin's Institutes, the various relevant works of Van Til and the like? 
If not, he is wasting his time in defrauding God's people. If he knows his Bible, and if he is thoroughly grounded in sound theology and Christian presuppositional analysis, then he can profitably deal with the enemy's thought and effectively cut out the ground from under the opposition. Again and again, reform movements within the church have gone astray, and the reforming seminaries all too quickly are proud of their respectability and accreditation by the enemy. Their scholars write learned studies dissecting the enemy by means of critical analysis and then wind up, inch by inch, yard by yard, in the enemy's camp. All too readily they become themselves the cultural despisers of God's humble believers and the enemies of Christ's flock. By means of the methodology of critical analysis, they move into an alien systematics and begin to war against the household of faith. The necessity for a truly biblical systematic theology is thus an urgent one. If we do not view all things in terms of the triune God and His Word, then we deny Him at point after point. Section 19. Anti-Abstractionism The idea of God or some substitute for it keeps cropping up in anti-Christian and atheistic philosophies. A world without God is a world empty of meaning, direction, purpose, and reason. Man's attempts to provide a rational center and purpose prove finally absurd. Death and unreason conquer all. As a result, men resort to the idea of God in some form in order to preserve the freedom of man. Man needs a backdrop of meaning in order to develop his own meaning. Karl Barth, for example, saw clearly the radical emptiness of the universe of any meaning wherever biblical faith is denied. Barth wanted two very different things. First, the freedom of man from God to be his own lord and lawmaker. Second, the full insurance and the doctrine of God against the abyss of meaninglessness. Accordingly, he affirmed the biblical doctrines as limiting concepts to keep back the void provide the insurance of meaning, and thereby give man the freedom to function in a universe of ostensible meaning. Like all such efforts, Bart's attempt was a failure. Such attempts are not new. Paul warns Timothy of the infiltration of the church by traitors, who would be outwardly of the faith, but in reality alien to it, 2 Timothy 3, 1 and through 4. And he concludes by stating that all such have a form of godliness, but are denying the power thereof, from such turn away, 2 Timothy 3.5. To illustrate this fact, a seminary professor savagely criticized a student, D.C., for taking biblical law seriously. I suppose, he said with contempt, you actually believe Deuteronomy 21.18-21 and would have a rebellious and delinquent son executed? The student answered Professor D. thus, let us not go into the question of the present validity of the law requiring the death of incorrigible delinquents and criminals. Let us assume for the moment that the law was dropped at the cross. Are you implying that, between Moses and Christ, for 1,500 years or so, God did not require this law, which you find disgusting and contemptible? Professor D., who claims to be orthodox, held that the law was merely a teaching device, not intended to be taken seriously or literally. How then does one read any of God's law? How do we take, Thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery, Deuteronomy 5.17-18? For Professor D., the law is not real, because his God is not real. But the law and his God are limiting concepts. A universal principle is affirmed as a limit, not as a fact. But God becomes a fence man builds in order to protect man's universe from unreason. He is not the living God of Scripture, who is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29, but man's own limiting notions projected onto the universe or into the future. 
In a brilliant analysis of such thinking among contemporary Protestant and Roman Catholic thinkers, Greg Bonson has pointed out that for these men, revelation rests upon a subjective and man-centered fulcrum. For these men, God is the future wherever it should eventuate. G. Baum has declared, The doctrine of God is the good news that humanity is possible. Here is the emphasis on the limiting concept as a guarantee of human possibility is very open. God is man's future. What humanity can become if it uses its political strength to plan for the future. Quote, man must be the new source of predestination through politics. End quote. It is not, however, the modernist theologians alone who use the biblical God as a limiting concept and as a facade for the humanism. The same attempt is common to many evangelicals and to reformed men as well, as witness Professor D and others like him. For these men, the Holy Spirit becomes the new limiting notion. He is detached from the every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. This is a major denial of the faith. A partial word is one in which man's word hides behind the facade of God's word. If I say that thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery are God's word, but that thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not bear false witness, Exodus 20, 13-16, are culturally conditioned words to be read as such, or that the sexual laws of Leviticus 19 are also culturally conditioned, then my word is made more important than God's word. And then I am the determiner of which word is the word of God for me. I then pass judgment on God as God over God. But this is blasphemy and unbelief. If I likewise determine apart from the every word of God and faith in and obedience thereto what constitutes the Spirit-filled life, then I have raised my spirit into the office of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This, however, is exactly what most advocates of spiritual Christianity have done. In the name of Christ and the Spirit, they have made their spiritual experiences a part of the life of God. Abstractionism in religion reduces God at best to a wise counselor who gives us a beautiful and an inspiring word and raises man to the center of the stage as the reality of being. Man's word is then the, the determinative word and man is the living power. The Bible, it cannot be repeated often enough, was not given to man to be an inspiring word, but the command word. It is not intended to please man, but to declare to him what he is in himself and what he must be in the Lord. The Bible is inspired, not inspiring. It is infallible, because it is the word of God. But for the abstractionist, the Bible is often a gauchy book, which must be spiritualized and read symbolically in order to be made palatable. The Bible forbids us to make any reduction or abstraction. We can neither add nor subtract from God's word, either in our faith and obedience or in our textual transmission of Scripture. Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2. This command is repeated in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Now, there is a conclusion to the words of that one word. But this is not all. Scripture requires us to take the totality of God's given word. It also requires us to come to Him with the totality of our being. All forms of self-mutilation are forbidden to the priests of God. Leviticus 21, 1-5 God requires the service of the whole man. This law applies also to all men. All mutilated men are barred from the privileges of the community. Deuteronomy 23, 1 such a man may become a believer and be assured of his eternal security in Christ, Acts 8, 26-40. But the rule of the kingdom belongs to whole men and requires the wholeness of life. The Christian faith cannot be abstracted into a corner of life which is separated from the rest and is called the religious or the spiritual realm. The religious realm is the totality of things. 
A systematic biblical theology will thus find it impossible to limit the religious realm to the ecclesiastical domain. God is totally God and Lord. The universe is totally under Him and His law word. A systematic theology which is faithful to the living God will thus speak to the totality of man and his life. It will be systematically and faithfully biblical. To depart from Scripture is to depart from the living God. It is the word of God which reveals God, not the word of man. Therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 2, 4, not the abstractions and words of man. Seize ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Isaiah 2, 22.